Welcome to Opus Private Clients Wealth Style Podcast. All of the material discussed on our podcasts have specific themes, and that's to move your wealth and lifestyle forward, increase your purpose, and provide you with clarity and confidence. Opus's mantra is always forward. We have found that regardless of one's wealth, moving your lifestyle forward is the number one priority for our clients. On our podcasts, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to another WellStyle podcast. My name is Yvonne Watanabe here with my partner, Evan Wall. What's going on, Evan? How are you, man? Doing great. Happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. And today we've got a very special guest, um, our, our internal investment specialist, Alex. What's going on, buddy? How are you? Doing good. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Doing well. Um, so today for the listening audience, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, normally, we're just recording on the podcast, but what we're going to do today is, is um, share some, some slides and some information. Um, and for those that are visually inclined, we'll, we'll have it up on our YouTube channel for you all to check out. Additionally, this podcast today is going to be a follow-up to one that we recorded previously, uh, discussing some of the equity grants that people get from their companies, how to assess um, some taxation, and, and really just you know how to overall think about um, that compensation. So we're going to do that. And we're going to do something also a little bit different. Evan and I are going to pretend like we don't have any clue or very little clue of what is actually going on um, and try to take more of a client approach um, as we ask Alex some of those questions. So um, with that being said, Alex, why don't you kind of kick it off and, and, uh, and go from there? Yvonne, thank you so much for that introduction. And yes, this is uh, essentially part two of a topic that we discussed um, earlier in the podcast series. Uh, that conversation was, what are equity awards or what are alternate forms of compensation that your employer might provide to you? Um, we had conversations about what RSUs, NSOs, ISOs are. We're going to walk through those as just a quick refresher. But what we're really looking at is ways that companies can provide compensation to you other than form the form of your base salary, your cash bonus, and a method that connects you to the performance of the company. And the most common approach is to grant those employees forms of equity in the company, either as restricted stock units, so those are the RSUs, NSOs, or non-qualified stock options, or ISOs, incentive stock options. They all work a little bit differently. Some of them have a couple of different uh, ways to deal with taxation upon buying or selling of those individual awards. And as a quick refresher, RSUs, you're basically granted a share of the company. It's once they vest, which will also refresh our memories on what that means, you have a share of the company in your account, free and clear to do with as you'd like. That's an RSU, a restricted stock unit. A non-qualified stock option or an incentive stock option, those are the contractual agreement to buy a share of the company at a predetermined price. So if a company is giving you a option, it allows you to buy a share of the company typically at a lower price than the current fair market value of that company. And in return for that predetermined cost, you can receive or sell a copy of or share of that company at the current fair market value price. 
NSOs and ISOs are a little bit different. NSOs are typically provided by more established companies. They don't have to only be provided to employees. They can be provided to people who are vendors of the company, uh, service providers, independent contractors that work for the company, while ISOs are only for employees of the company. It's also more prevalent in the tech space and the early startup space to see ISOs. So typically that's the differentiation on why a company would offer one instead of the other. The, the biggest difference between all three of these is how they work in practice. What does it mean for a company to give you these awards? How do they become yours fully in, in your full ownership as time progresses, what we call vesting? And then when you finally go to use the proceeds of selling a RSU or exercising an option, what does that mean to you in terms of real dollars and how taxation applies? We're actually going to walk through some of those examples today. We're going to put you in essentially the, the shoes of an employee and say, hey, this is what it's like to receive a thousand shares of company XYZ. This is what it's like to receive a thousand NSOs from company XYZ. This is what it's like to receive a thousand ISOs from company XYZ. So we'll jump into those examples in just a minute. But as that quick refresher, Evan, Yvonne, any questions that you think that would come up in conversations with our clients? None at this point. I'm, I'm excited to jump in. I know I've got a lot of clients that uh, receive some compensation in, in, in this uh, form. So uh, they all have lots of questions. Uh, and so it'll be a good refresher. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, <laughs> I think, you know, just as a sort of a, a disclaimer here, um, we want to make sure that the information that we're sort of providing is just theoretical. You should 100% make sure that you're running the taxation piece by your CPA to actually get what the real tax dollars will or impact will look like. Um, but this is how you can kind of make the assessment for yourself on, again, just based on the tax code, what am I going to be taxed for whatever um, strategy I decide to implement, right? And that's ultimately the conversation that we have with folks all the time is, hey, which lot should I be selling? What's the impact going to look like? Why would I sell one lot versus another? Um, and, and again, Alex, we're excited to kind of have you walk through that. Exactly, great. So what I'm going to do is, again, for those who are watching at home on some sort of video, we'll have a visual reference, but even to those who are listening along, we'll explain it um, so that you guys can keep up with us. Uh, but what we're going to be doing, again, is walking through those three different scenarios. We're going to start off with the restricted stock unit. Frankly, the RSU type of equity award is a, the one that we commonly see, or we see the most uh, commonly issued by companies. So companies of all types, shapes, sizes issue RSUs. Again, what it means to get an RSU once it's vested is to actually receive a full share of the company. And what I would like you to imagine is as if your company granted you a thousand RSUs and those RSUs are going to vest over a four year period of time where every year after the initial grant date, 25% of that overall award is going to be vested and fully owned by the employee. So in this scenario, if you get a thousand RSUs, let's say that's January 1st of 2023 in 2024, January 1st, you're going to receive 25% of that allotment of the equity awards. Every year thereafter, another 25% until the award has been completely vested. So the vesting I, means they they own it. They, and it's at that point that they'll exactly. receive taxation on that, right? 
it's fully free in theirs to decide with as they choose. Some restrictions um, that are common, it's not so much on, on the ability on whether to buy or sell, but when to buy or sell uh, would be trade blackouts. So every company, you know, if you're subject to sensitive information where you could trade and it would be considered insider or you would have the ability to trade off of insider information, they provide trade blackout dates. But aside from that, if you wanted to sell all of your restricted stock units that invested to you and you wanted to buy a bouncy castle, you certainly could do so. <laughs> it's fully free and clear. So um, what you want to do with those shares once they're vested is up to you. If they are unvested, you don't have access to them. Uh, should you leave the company with unvested shares, it's unlikely they would be flushed out to you. They would typically be surrendered. So it's actually one of the reasons why companies choose to grant uh, compensation in this format because it incentivizes you to stay till the end of the vesting schedule. Yeah. And I, I and think then, one of the major pieces here, guys, for, for, especially for clients that, that, you know, aren't coming to us, of course, our clients are forwarding over the information, but for those listening, you really have to understand what that vesting schedule looks like because every plan is different, right? So that is one of the main pieces of information you have to really be clear on is what's the vesting schedule look like and and you mentioned the blackout dates, another major thing that they have to understand, because if you know that you're going to need some money coming up and you have some, you know, some vested stock that you want to sell. Listen, if you're in that blackout period, no matter how badly you want to get that money, you're not getting it out. Right. So you have to really make sure that you are working within the parameters of the plan documents and that you plan way in advance for these things, because, um, again, you know, they're not going to allow you to do anything with those positions if it's a blackout date. And they clearly tell you in advance. But again, those things need to be on your radar um, as you do your planning. Exactly right. So what we're looking at when it comes to RSUs, again, we're taking a look at this example where a thousand RSUs are granted to the employee. And over a quarter, you know, a course of four years, 25 percent will vest every year. I gave a illustrative example income of 100,000. So let's say you're making $100,000 in base salary with that company. That comes into play because of how taxation is realized on, on RSUs. So when you are granted RSUs, upon grant date, there's no taxable consequence, no liability that's immediately realized. But as these units vest over time and they get sent to you, they become a part of your taxable income in that calendar year. So on a, at a high level, let's say we're looking at this example, and then assume we didn't have any specific circumstance to address the tax. Year one comes along and 25% of these, the thousand shares vests to the employee. Whatever the fair market value of that 25% represents, that's going to be added to your taxable income. So on paper, it's like you're making $100,000 of your base salary plus whatever the fair market value of that total 25% is. And that's going to keep happening year over year until the vest, the award is fully vested. In so, this it's example, so it's important to remember that it's the, the value at the date of vest, not the value at the date of grant, because the, exactly the, right. the stock could have fallen or risen you know, 20 or 30% between those two, two dates. Exactly right. And it, and it works both ways, up or down. So if mm -hmm. you have invested to you one year at a certain share price, and then the next year it drops, the taxable impact is going to be different. Mm -hmm. um, in the example that we're showing today, we're illustrating a common um, way that employees manage the tax piece, which is to have a net share settlement. What does that mean? It means that 
while yes, 25% of these awards is owed to you upon vesting, you can elect to have a smaller number of shares sent to you and whatever shares aren't sent to you is sold immediately to cover the income tax liability so that you don't have to deal with it on your own personal end and sell those shares to cover the expenses or have it come out of pocket or have the income deducted from your W-2 income. So there are different ways to address it. The one that we most commonly see employees elect is this net share settlement. So when that happens, let's say you elect net share settlement, at a minimum, 22% of that restricted stock unit vesting allotment is going to be withheld. If you have an income, a W-2 income over a million dollars, it's going to be a 37% uh, withdrawal rate that they will withhold for you. That way, you don't have to cover the majority of the tax liability by the end of the year. Just one key warning, because some, some employees don't always remember this, is while they're holding on to 22% for you, that doesn't mean you only have to pay 22%. You're going to owe the difference between 22% and whatever your top marginal income bracket is going to be at the end of the year. Not only that, that's your federal tax alone. You may owe state tax depending on where you live. So you still need to run this by your CPA, give them all of your information on what vested in the given year to make sure that you don't underpay taxes or you know, you're aware of what your tax liability will be the next year. And yeah. we're going to show how that looks like in just a minute. Yeah. And for a lot of our clients, again, just to that point, you know, we're, we're recommending that their CPAs run these numbers, these figures during the year to help figure out maybe there are other ways for you to be you know, withholding more from your traditional W-2 income to help offset that tax. Because again, only 22% is getting withheld from the actual from the actual shares. So, you know, the idea is make sure that you have a game plan going into it. I can't tell you how many people and companies come to tax time and, and didn't understand what they needed to pay in tax. And it's a rude awakening, you know, come tax time if you didn't assess this correctly. So, really just um, being proactive on this is, is critical. Yeah. So the, in this example, I want to illustrate a stock or a share of the company over a four-year period of time, where on the day of grant, the RSU's price or the fair market value of the share is $10. And every year after, it assumes that the share price has grown by $5. I wanted to keep the math simple just for our, our example. So I want on day one of the equity award schedule, right? The, the day of grant, you're, you as the employee are granted a thousand unvested RSUs. The fair market value of the share is $10 on that given day. You have $10,000 worth of potential value in unvested RSUs. None of that translates to cold hard cash because nothing is vested in, in your ownership yet. And again, no tax liabilities have been realized. That will happen upon the first vest, which will come in at the end of year one. So looking at the end of year one, now 250 shares of the initial allotment, again, 25%, is no longer unvested, but now is moving towards the process of being transferred to the employee. Again, we're assuming this situation that 22% of those shares are going to be withheld to address taxes. So you end up as the employee receiving less than 250 shares, 
But again, you understand that that is because a portion is being held for taxes. So the employee in this scenario ends up receiving 195 vested RSUs. And that is roughly a 2,925 vested value. And you have about 750 unvested RSUs still waiting to be, you know, to make their time in the vesting schedule. That potential value is now 11,250. Again, the share is increasing in value as time progresses. And now when we look at the taxable component upon vesting, you'll see that because you had 250 shares added to your taxable income, that current fair market value of those shares is $3,750, making your gross taxable income $103,750 for the year. And that is year one. As we move, as we keep going down the scenario, now looking at year two, you're 50% way through your vesting schedule. Again, you're receiving less than 250 that year in terms of vested RSUs. So we're looking at now 390 total vested RSUs, a vested value of $7,800. Again, 22% was withheld in the process of going from unvested to vested. And they're gonna, you know, the custodian's gonna hang on to that for you. But we need to be aware that in this year, because the share value has increased, even though the number of shares being transferred is the same, the impact on your taxable income is larger. So this year, $5,000 is going to be added to your taxable income instead of, uh, instead of the $3,750 number before. This will continue for another two years, and another 250 gets uh, moved from unvested, 22% is withheld, another share goes to, uh, another portion goes to the vested shares, and now you're left with less. We do this for a total of four years, and what you end up with at the end of the scenario is all RSUs have vested, so there are zero unvested shares. You have about 780 vested shares. Again, that's after 22% withholding every year. That's a total value of 23,400 vested value. And you'll also note that we are still seeing this taxable income impact as the share value grows year over year. We'll see that it gets added to, the, to your gross taxable income. And in this given year, we're adding 7,500 to your overall taxable income. But now the great thing is you have full free independence to do with these shares as you would like because they are officially yours. They're no longer unvested. The client can now choose to sell when they want to. You know, if they want to hold on to them, they can do that as well. And now we're on to the next part of how they are taxed upon sale. Before we get to that, Evan and Yvonne, any questions that you think our clients would have at this point? Just to, to reiterate, before the day one, all those shares granted at what we thought was a $10,000 total value, right? Because I think there was, uh, a, what was the calculation? $10 per share. And, yep, $10 uh, per share on the day and 1,000 shares. So $10,000 value. Right. And so because we're illustrating the share price rising over time, where mm -hmm. it started, you thought you were getting $10,000 day one. The share price rose over time, and you know, in this scenario, it came out to twenty three thousand four hundred. So, when if you're thinking about should I be taking this job or some other job, and part of uh, maybe a good part of the compensation is an equity, you got the upside, and you also have the downside because obviously, you know, shares shares rising in prices is, is certainly not guaranteed. So, uh, exactly it's an additional right. risk that the employee takes on that the employer does not. Correct. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the performance of the companies is tantamount to how you do with these awards. Um, you hope that you work for a strong company that's going to continue to grow while you work there. But we have seen this play out um, with clients in our in our practice that they received equity compensation at a point where the company was doing well, and the market value of those shares dropped as opposed to grow, uh, you know, having grown over time. So in essence, their compensation is reduced and is mm -hmm. less in value. So it's certainly a risk that is out there and, and is possible in the scenario of RSUs. One benefit of receiving RSUs as opposed to the other forms of compensation that we'll, we'll run through in just a minute is when you receive an RSU, even if the market value has decreased, if there's any value at all, it's yours. Maybe a share dropped from $30 a share to $25 a share, but you still have $25 a share of worth of value. When it comes to auctions, it's not always the case. And uh, we've also seen that too, and, and we'll address that in just a minute. So that's you know scenario one for us. We're talking about RSUs. Once you sell, or sorry, once the RSUs have vested and you are now able to buy in or rather hold on to those shares or sell those shares, there's another component of the taxation that we need to be aware of, which is capital gains. So similarly to if you were to go to market and buy a share of Apple and you paid X amount of money for it and then you sold it at another point in time for why, what you will owe in taxes on that transaction is the difference between X and Y at either short-term capital gains rates or long-term capital gains rates. That same type of taxation applies to vested RSUs. And the difference here is that the cost basis, right, what you paid for the, the value of the share is going to be the fair market value on the day of vest. So, Evan and Yvonne, if you received that first allotment of uh, 250 shares in this example, right, at a $15 per share value, uh, and then you decided to sell that same share two, three years later at a $30 value per share, you're going to owe either short-term or long-term capital gains based on the, the difference between 30 and 15. And since it's over a year that you've held on to that share, you're going to pay long-term capital gains rates, which we can find, you know, zero, five percent, twenty percent, and for the highest income earners, up to twenty-three point eight percent. If you're paying short-term capital gains, you're going to be paying your top marginal income tax bracket. So this is another piece that's very important for clients to be aware of when they're going to liquidate their funds. Um, you know, we have conversations all the time where clients are trying to find uh, sources of funds for their down payments or for or short short term liquidity needs. And that's where you have to balance. Do I sell the lowest cost basis, most return on investment shares, right? The ones that have had them the biggest success and pay long term capital gains rates? Or do I sell my shares that maybe haven't, you know, done net net rate of return the best? but they're in the short-term capital gains bracket. So they may, you might want to minimize that taxable impact. Ultimately, it's a conversation that needs to be had with a, a tax advisor, but those are the conversations that we have about where do we take this money from? Where do we service that short-term liquidity need? And do we want to pay long-term or short-term capital gains? Yeah. So just to be clear, right? We're paying taxes, ordinary income taxes on the date of vest. And then when I sell the, the shares, I'm paying 
some type of capital gains tax on however it grew based off the fair market value on the day of vest. Right. So you're, you are paying taxes at two different times, but you're not paying taxes on the same thing twice. Yep. Understood. And, and we certainly have gotten that feedback <clears throat> too, where clients think, oh, they're, they're hitting me twice. You're paying taxes on two different parts of the overall compensation received. So that, that is the most common scenario that we run into, which is RSUs. But let's take an example where we're not getting shares, but we're getting options, right? So in that scenario, again, an option is just a contractual agreement to pay a certain price for the fair market value of the share on a given day. So let's imagine that the company is giving you a thousand non-qualified stock options. And let's assume that almost everything else about the scenario that we're looking at matches the RSU one we just did. Four-year vesting period, 25% vest per year, current base salary of about $100,000, right? We're trying to keep it as apples to apples comparison as possible. So unlike RSUs, you're not going to owe taxes or a taxable liability is not going to be realized upon you receiving the NSOs in your vesting allotment on an annual basis. So um, when you get 250 NSOs, you're not going to be adding that explicitly to your income in that given year. Taxation for the first time when it comes to NSOs is typically addressed when you go to exercise them. So when you exercise an option, it means you are taking advantage of the contractual agreement to buy the share at the predetermined value. So again, let's say that you have an option to buy a share of a stock of a company that has a fair market value of $30 per share, but you have an option where the strike price is $10, you pay 10 and you get something immediately in value of 30. Let's apply that to this scenario. We're going to use the same schedule of, of growth of the company over time. And I'm going to highlight what those pieces will look like as the years pass on, what different strike prices will mean to you from a taxation component, and ultimately how this equity award type differs in growth potential compared to RSUs. So again, let's imagine day one, right? You get a thousand NSOs granted to you Unvested, you'll start vesting for the first time the following year. No taxable liability is realized at this point, um, and it won't happen until you exercise. So come the end of year one, you get your first allotment of 250 NSOs. Again, we in this example, we haven't exercised any just yet, and we won't be. So you've received 250 NSOs in potential value because you haven't exercised them of $1,250. And what that is supposed to represent is the spread between the value of the share on the given day, which is $15 per share, and the strike price, which is the fair market value of the share upon vesting, or sorry, upon the grant date, which is a, a big, uh, big thing I want to clarify. These NSOs were granted when the fair market value of the share was $10, and that is considered the strike price. So from here on in, $10 is going to be the point of which you're going to measure how much money you've made off of these investments. If the shares go to $20, $25, $30 a share, the difference or really the, the growth that you will receive is the difference between $10 a share 
and whatever that fair market value of the share is on that given day. But year one, we've got 250 NSOs in our account. No money has been exchanged. No money has been realized yet. So no tax liabilities have been realized. And we're gonna be doing this for another three years. Two years, another 25% allotment. Another year passes, another 25% allotment. All the way when you've gone to year four now, you now have 1,000 total vested NSOs in your account. And that is worth a value of $20,000 because you have 1,000 NSOs where you can realize a spread of $20 each because the difference between the strike price and the fair market value of the share of the day is $20. So now you have ended up at the end of the vesting period with 1,000 total vested NSOs in your account and now why don't we take a look at how that actually works when you, when you go to exercise those options, get some money at, into your pocket, or choose to then decide if you want to continue to invest them and hold on to them or not. So when you choose to exercise an NSO, you will owe income tax on the day that you exercise them and the, the amount that you're going to owe is income tax on the difference between the strike price of the award and the fair market value of the share on the day of exercise. So and, if we're going to look at- Sorry to interrupt. Again, just to simplify, the strike price, strike price is just what you're buying it at, right? So it's the difference between what Correct. you're buying it at and what you, you know, the, the date of share, that the, the share price, that date, which is what you could sell it at. Correct. And the strike price is typically determined by the value of the share when you are granted these awards. Mm -hmm which in this scenario is gonna be $10. Again, that's gonna be that difference, but that is exactly right. It's the contractually agreed amount that you will pay out of pocket to then receive the share, which is actually a, a component of what we're gonna discuss right now. So from a tax perspective though, the first time you will be taxed upon or when, when manipulating these options is when you choose to exercise an option. And the tax that you're going to owe is the difference between the strike price and the fair market value. Once you pay that tax, the next time that you will owe taxes is ultimately when you choose to sell the underlying share. So Evan, let, let's take the example. You, you have an NSO that's, again, granted, you have a strike price of $10. The share is now worth $30, $30 right? And you've held on to, or we haven't actually talked about holding the shares yet, but Let's say you uh, you choose to exercise and hold the shares, right? Mm -hmm. The income tax component is going to be the spread between those two. What you choose to do thereafter is the sim, you know, the conversation that we've been having about capital gains. Let's say you've you the share is now yours. You've exercised the option, and now you hold on to that share that's worth thirty dollars, and you've hold on to it for over a year, and now the share value has gone to forty dollars. If you choose to sell it you will only owe capital gains tax on the difference between 40 and $30, right? And you're going to owe long-term capital gains rates because you've held on to it for over a year. So that second part, that, that second moment when you can get taxed on this is then ultimately when you choose to sell the underlying shares. So th those are the two kind of light switches that occur in these scenarios. Taxation part one is when you choose to exercise. Taxation part two is when you choose to sell the actual share itself. Any questions on that? Or, you know, Yvonne, maybe 
from your context, any questions that clients typically have in those scenarios of how to address the tax piece or what we see clients ask commonly in those scenarios? No, I mean, I think um, what's sort of popping up for me is we, we, when we look at the two different options, right? NSOs or, or RSUs, the, one of the big differences is the lack of control with the RSUs in terms of like how, how and when is that tax going to take place, right? You can have, yeah. you have control over how much or how you can plan around it, but you don't have control over when you receive them. You're getting taxed as soon as that money vests, you're getting taxed on that. With the NSOs, you, you, it's possible to be a little bit more strategic or forward thinking or plan a little bit more ahead. Hey, you know, I have a ton of, of other income this year. You know, this isn't a great year for me to exercise the NSOs based off of tax, a tax plan or, and, or, Hey, I'm going to exercise these and, and sell them because, you know, my feelings around the company are either really positive or negative. And, and those, you know, again, gives us a little bit more thought, but um, also some more control. So again, this is the option to buy the shares. You don't have to. And, you know, most of our clients are pretty in tune with their underlying company. So when we're walking through this exercise, it's really, again, understanding what's going on in the macro of their own personal plan, but also how do they feel about the company? You know, how do you feel about where the company's headed? How do you feel about where it's been? Do you think you're going to be there for a while? All of those are things that we kind of take into consideration, I think, when we're walking through the options. Yeah, I, I love that you brought up uh, strategy there because um, being strategic in when you choose to exercise and ultimately hold or sell these shares, income is a big component. Performance of the underlying shares itself, you know, does it make sense in a moment where the company maybe is not doing terribly well, but you still have long-term faith in the company, maybe we choose to exercise at that point and reduce the taxable component of the short-term, you know, the, the, the spread piece, right? Maybe that makes sense. Or, you know, we, we balance the needs of the tax planning with liquidity needs and say, mm -hmm. you know, ultimately, what's the most effective route for a client to take when choosing to get out of these positions? So yeah, strategy is is definitely the the name of the game when it comes to exercising NSOs and ISOs, which we'll address it. Yeah, you know the other part is frankly like how much of this underlying position makes up you know their portfolio, right? Their overall equity portfolio. You know, a lot of clients are very tied into the company because their W two base salaries from their company. Then they're getting all this compensation from the company, you know, and all their benefits are tied into it. So they are like heavily invested, not just finding, you know, in many different ways to one particular position, right? So the other piece here could be, do I want to just diversify away from X, Y, and Z company, right? And, and reduce my risk in a little bit, you know, you would have probably, it would probably wouldn't have been a great idea if you were, you know, top 100 employees at Facebook. But if you're at some of these other companies, you know, really just trying to understand like, how, how do I, how do I factor in the risk? Right. And, and one last comment and kind of bouncing off of what you said is when you're looking at diversification and, and trying to diversify away from positions like this, what are the costs associated to doing that? What's the cost of actually making those decisions? We've talked about the tax piece. Uh, you're going to owe income tax. You're going to have to owe the withholding minimums of that income tax on the day you exercise. So you're going to owe 22% straight up. Uh, if the spread is under a million, 37% if it's over a million. Not only do you have that tax piece, but 
what we haven't really focused on yet is the actual cost for the share. Mm-hmm. So you're going to owe income tax plus $10 a share in this example. Mm-hmm. So there's money that if you choose to buy and hold, you're going to have to come out of pocket and supply transactionally to make this happen. For clients that choose to do cashless exercises, which doesn't involve any liquidity coming out of your own pocket, you can do that, but just understand that the costs are still real and you will still owe them. They're just netted out from the ultimate, you know, from the revenue of the liquidated proceeds. So you, there are plenty of levels of strategic planning that come into how to transact this. Um, and you need to be forward thinking of how am I gonna use the, the equity that's been granted to me Am I going to use it for long-term growth? Am I going to use it for short-term liquidity needs? And what are the ramifications of doing so? So we've talked about RSUs, we've talked about NSOs. What we haven't quite talked about yet are ISOs. So ISOs in principle, very similar to NSOs, excuse me, um, that it is still the contractual agreement to buy a share at a given price, right? It's still a stock So let's keep that in mind that you still have options granted to you, let's say a thousand for a specific award, 25% vesting over a given year, and let's assume the same about your base salary, so $100,000. So similar to NSOs, no tax liabilities are realized upon ISOs vesting or or moving from uh, unvested to vested, but you will potentially owe some tax liabilities in the year that you exercise the options. So unlike NSOs where you will definitely owe tax, uh, you know, income tax on the spread, and you will not get away from that, you may owe uh, income or not income tax, a tax liability on the day you exercise for ISOs. And that comes down to AMT tax. We're going to dive into that in this example in in a larger way. But just one thing to be aware of, it's not definitive, but you may owe tax upon day of exercise. The day you will definitively owe some sort of tax is the day that you sell those underlying shares received through the uh, exercising of an incentive stock option. And the thing to note there is that depending on how long ago these were granted to you, how long ago uh, you exercised the option itself, and in what calendar year you exercise and sold these options, those three parameters have a very big impact on how and what type of taxes you're going to pay come when you choose to actually sell. So the ISO and common and prevalent in the tech industry, easily the most confusing of all these of these three different types. It's the ones that we get the most questions on. RSUs and NSOs, people pretty much have a fair understanding of what you know, what they might owe when it comes to taxes at the end of the year, but ISOs can be tricky. And we're going to highlight that now in, uh, in our next example. So a thousand ISOs are granted to you on a given day, $10 a share. So the strike price is $10, right? Just like an ISO, assuming that we do not exercise any of these ISOs throughout the vesting period, we're not going to realize any tax liabilities in that time frame. So year one, year two, year three, and year four, we're going to see 25% of the total grant sent over to your account. And you'll see that the values match the same values from the NSOs because the spread is still the same on paper. 
So we make our way 50% into the given schedule, 500 unvested ISOs, 500 vested ISOs are now in your account. Keep going another 25% all the way until we're at the end of year four, where I now have a thousand vested ISOs in my pocket at a fair market value of the day of $30 a share. Because the strike price is $10 a share, I have a spread or a vested value of, of $20,000 um, that I could get from liquidating these ISOs on a gross uh, total amount. Now, the potential future tax liabilities kick in again with ISOs when it comes to when you choose um, to exercise and how much is the spread between the strike price and the fair market value on the day. So if you're unfamiliar with the AMT, the alternative minimum tax, essentially what it serves as a alternative tax that you must pay given um, certain income assumptions and certain AMT preference items, which means that, you know, sources of what the government would consider income that don't strictly match, you know, W-2 compensation or 1099 compensation. Um, those get added together in a formula and ultimately determines if you owe your regular income tax amount or this alternative minimum tax. ISOs can add to your alternative minimum tax preference item list, meaning that if the spread between the strike price that you were granted an ISO and the exercise price of an ISO or the fair market value on that day, is if that's too big, it's going to add a fair amount of value to your preference items on the AMT, and it may push you to have to pay AMT in the given year of exercise. Why is that so important? Because you effectively, as the employee, end up potentially owing an actual tax owed with real dollars on hand without necessarily having liquidity to address it. You may not have the option to sell these ISOs, depending on what company you're with or how early in the process of the startup process they're in. Um, you also haven't explicitly sold those ISOs either. So, you know, it's not a consequence of selling these shares and having money. It's purely a consequence of just even exercising, exercising the option and having the ability to do so. However, so we, we realize this potential risk. However, if you don't exceed that differential on the AMT preference item list, you will not owe AMT and the ISOs are actually going to be tax preferable compared to an NSO. And the reason being is if you choose to do uh, a buy and hold strategy, for example, on an ISO, let's assume that you, the difference in the spread is not large enough for you to realize an AMT tax in that given year. You hold the shares for upwards of a year from uh, the day that they vested and you chose to exercise them on that day. And also you've chosen to sell them two years after the initial grant date. You can now pay long-term capital gains on, the, on the, the total holding. The difference is having to pay AMT tax, which can be 26, 28% given you know, tax brackets, or paying long-term capital gains rates on 20% or, or you know, 5%. It really depends on what your income is in a given year. So ISOs are known as these vehicles where they are tax preferred because of this ability to, to get around this AMT 
requirement or not requirement, but you know, you can essentially plan ahead, avoid the AMT from kicking in, and then still get tax preferential treatment when you ultimately choose to exit the ISO with some with some fair planning. Um, again, there is still this risk, and we've seen in the clients that the AMT kicks in. Uh, they will owe a slightly more than what their income tax is at the end of the year, and they'll have to write that check for the difference. One thing to note, however, is that you can use that difference as a credit in years that you don't owe the AMT. So this is why having a tax uh, advisor who knows what they're talking about is super important because they need to run these numbers with you and you need to say, hey, you know, I have X amount of ISOs. Let's have a discussion about what I can exercise without pushing me into the AMT. Yeah. And I think, Alex, I think that's probably a good a good place for us to kind of wrap up the conversation. Um, you know, we've gone over a ton of information today, yeah. um, RSUs, NSOs, ISOs. You know, I think leaving it at having a conversation, planning ahead with both your advisor and your CPA, understanding the rules of your current plan, but also, you know, how that may impact you, especially if you're getting new job offers. All of those things are things that, you know, I think would make sense to plan ahead with. So, um, listen, this was super valuable. I appreciate you kind of walking us um, as the clients and, and also the, the listening audience through this scenario. Um, and again, uh, thank you to the listening audience for tuning in. Uh, again, you can check out our YouTube channel and also please uh, make sure to click subscribe below to be notified when we have new podcast episodes going forward. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC and your financial representative are not undertaking to provide investment advice or make a recommendation for a specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. All scenarios and names mentioned herein are purely fictional and have been created solely for educational purposes. Any resemblance to existing situations, persons, or fictional characters is coincidental. The information presented should not be used as the basis for any specific investment advice. You must always seek individual professional advice. Yvonne Watanabe, Evan Wool, and Alejandro Azur are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities LLC PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS member FINRA SIPC. Yvonne and Evan are financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Yvonne's California Insurance License Number 0H44206. Evans California Insurance License Number 0H04936. Compliance Approval 2023-153208. Expires March of 2025.